Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of F This Movie, the podcast for people who enjoy half-formed thoughts and excessive cursing. Uh, my name is Patrick Bromley, and joining me once again tonight is Mr. JB. Hello. I'm in a weird mood because, I don't know, for the last couple days, I don't know if this is reality or if I'm dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Please note, we will not be making fun of the movie tonight because it's terrific. Let's, let's begin by saying Absolutely. that. Absolutely. We kid... Because we love. However, at the at the very end of the show, we are going to pose the question, did we really just have this conversation? Well, what Patrick doesn't realize is through this little briefcase thingy of mine and a, a tremendous capital outlay, courtesy of Kent Watanabe, I have implanted the idea of doing a podcast into his head. He doesn't realize it. He thinks the idea was his. Huh? It has something to do with his father and Ellen Page. <laughs> Everything in my life has something to do with either my father or Ellen Page. That's truer than you think, my friend. She's <laughs> tiny and Canadian, and I want to carry her in my pocket and hear her say sarcastic things. Um, tonight, in case you haven't guessed, dummies, we're talking <laughs> about Inception. Um... The new Christopher Nolan movie, currently in theaters, that's right, rather than effing some dumb old movie that's on VHS, <laughs> we're talking about a movie that you could go see right now! As, well, you should, although I'm hoping if you're listening to this, you've seen it, because years from now, Wikipedia will be using this podcast as an illustration, excuse me, of spoiler alert. Yes. There isn't very much we're going to keep a secret right. so if you haven't seen it shut this off go see it come home make yourself a drink perhaps an apple teeny a strong drink and uh, resume the podcast you've been warned um before we get into inception i have to ask the question i always ask does this make me look fat um have you seen anything good lately jb well i'll tell you uh besides in inception Inception was very good, if I made that clear. Um, there is a theater in Chicago. I may have referenced it last time. This one's called The Portage, and it's wonderful, and it's an old movie palace, and it's on Irving Park in Milwaukee, and it's... Spoiler! Uh, Sorry. It's not a spoiler if I tell them how to get there. <laughs> the location is a spoiler. We wanted to drive around for hours, but... John spoiled no, that Now we is. know how to get there. It's totally ruined. Uh, it's now owned by the Park District because no one man can afford to own one of those theaters anymore. And needless to say, they do a lot of programming that's very wonderful. The Silent Film Society of Chicago. Um, boy, that sounded weird. Society. <laughs> uh, it's because get, we're dreaming. I get so excited <laughs> thinking about Silent In Films. In dreams, words sound fucked up. Then I, uh, then I get rules. too excited. The Silent Film Society of Chicago is starting their summer series this Friday. Six Friday nights, six silent movies. What's to hate? But um, last Sunday, they celebrated the anniversary of Dillinger's killing. Yay! Um, well, he's a pretty bad guy. And um, they showed Manhattan Melodrama, which, of course, was the film that was playing at the Biograph that he went to see shortly before his demise. And then they showed Public Enemies, the disappointing Johnny Depp film, which nevertheless was partially filmed inside the portage, because when you go to see Public Enemies, the outside of the biograph is the biograph, but the inside of the biograph is the portage. So I went there, they were charging a quarter, which I guess was what admission was in 1934, and I saw Manhattan Melodrama for the first time, and boy... Uh, giving lie to anyone who thinks that movies back then were simplistic or silly or, um, you know, that the good guy always had a win and the bad guy always had a lose, that they were, they sort of had a very uh, uncompromising moral compass. This movie was incredible. And uh, it seems to me to be one of the first of a genre that later springs up where the two boyhood chums go different ways. Angels with Dirty Faces. A Angels with Dirty Faces is probably the most famous. Tango and Cash. <laughs> and one of them ends up uh, head of the crime syndicate and 
Just coincidentally, the other one ends up the DA, the hard-bitten DA. But what was interesting is the film keeps you in in a state of uh, of being perplexed because we love Clark Gable. He's very charming and wonderful as the criminal, and William Powell, who's the epitome of charming in every other film that he made yeah. is somehow made less charming. And I'm wondering, did he do this on purpose because he's in cahoots with director W.S. Van Dyke? Or is it just that he's starring opposite Gable right. and nobody and out his, charms Gable? And his part is less fun too, correct? True. I mean, that's almost always true of the story you're describing. And for Elliot film, Ness is much less colorful yeah. than Al Capone. And it's it's interesting for film fans because uh, Myrna Loy plays the woman ow, who ow. comes between them, and uh, she throws over Gable and begins to uh, uh, go out with uh, William Powell, and they eventually get married and, and solve a, crimes together. Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> that it's a chance to see the Thin Man couple, Nick and Nora Charles, several years before that franchise began. But uh, amazing acting, wonderful dialogue, and a script that's. Maybe it's because it's it's 2010. I'm sitting there and I can't figure out how they're going to resolve this, because Gable is too charming to kill. Yeah. But you know he's going to the chair because we see him murder two people, <laughs> and it's 1934. So how is this going to be resolved? Right. Um, needless to say, I recommend it, especially sitting in the portage um, on a very hot day and it's air conditioned and you only paid a quarter. When you left the theater, did anyone shoot you? No, I saw some questionable people outside, but it turns out they were only there for a smoke. By the way, that is spoilers for Public Enemy. John Dillinger dies at the end. That is probably the worst moment in Public Enemies. When John Dillinger finally does get shot, it's done with this bad CGI bullet thing like in his cheek. We've essentially waited the whole movie to see him be killed because we know that that's what the whole story is leading up to. And then it's the most disappointing moment in an overall disappointing film. And I may go to the movies for the wrong reason, and I have a, a warm spot in my heart for Lincoln Avenue where the Biograph is, because I not only used to go to the Biograph a lot back when it was still a movie theater, and when I was going to DePaul, uh, obviously Lincoln Avenue is right next door, but they do an amazing job transforming the real Lincoln Avenue into Lincoln Avenue 1934, and then show it in the movie for all of two and a half seconds. Yeah. What is, are you afraid if we look at it too long, we'll figure out how you did it? It's amazing. How about a tracking shot, Mike? Right. Good Lord, yeah. this is one of the reasons we go to the movies. I saw The Terminator for the first time on the big screen for a, a dollar. A local movie theater is running older MGM films yeah. during the summer for a buck. And was it on 35mm? Yeah. They because have all been. The other thing I liked at the Portages, and they put this in the ad, right. they were showing both on right. film. Because they actually do a lot of video projection at the Portage. But yes. they, you're pretty good about advertising when they're doing 35mm. That's true. And uh, from experience, um, some of the quadruple features that play... Hi, John. They recently got a new video projector that looks much better than the old video projector because there was a period of time where they were showing the Incredible Shrinking Man in glaucoma vision. <laughs> um, I don't have much to say about the Terminator except that it still holds up. It's dated in terms of the clothing and obviously some of the special effects, particularly on the big screen. Um, watching it at home, those opening moments where you see the nuclear wasteland future and the giant machines going over the skulls. At home, that's always looked pretty good. And on the big screen, it was like it, you can notice how much more it looks like a model. Did you stay for the credits? I did. Did you notice at the end? I'm not sure about this. Okay. But does Harlan Ellison get a shout out? Yes. Yes. Because, because another lawsuit, right? Another great thing about yeah. the original Terminator is it was probably unconscious. It bore a striking resemblance to a TV episode that uh, Harlan Ellison had written, wonderful science fiction author, and um, he sued, and he won. The television episode was called Soldier, and I don't know if it was a Twilight Zone or an Outer Limits or something, but they proved that, that it was suspiciously close. And I forget what the credit read. I want to say it was like acknowledgement to the contributions of Harlan yeah. Ellison or something to that effect. Um, but you know who's in uh, Public Enemies? 
Marion Cotillard. And do you know what other movie she's in? La That's Vie right. and Rosé? No. I was taking a turn down Segway Town. And I put up a wooden sawhorse with one of those <laughs> blinking yellow lights on it. She's in Inception. She's in Inception. The movie we're effing. Which brings up an interesting point. All right. And I don't think I've seen enough of her work okay. to be a hater I think or a fan. I think that was the third movie I've seen her in. I think I've probably seen her in those same three films. <laughs> and I was wondering if it was um, the, the nature of her role in Public Enemies and the nature of her role in Inception that made me wonder how good she is. Because in Inception, she has a very difficult part to play mm -hmm. in terms of the fact that, for all intents and purposes, she's only a memory. Mm -hmm. In fact, at the end, DiCaprio has a fairly lengthy monologue where it almost seems like he's trying to explain why Cotillard's performance is so eccentric. Because we're not seeing her, we're seeing her right. memory of her, right. which is faulty and incomplete. I right. cannot imagine right. the totality of you. Right. But at the beginning, at least, it comes off as so much of a 1940s film noir, femme yeah. fatale, I'm yeah. here to screw everything up, buster. And and I don't know. It's quite odd. And did it strike you that the whole DiCaprio-Cotillard thing was very, very similar? Yes. Well, we'll get, yeah, we'll get into that. I to think. the, yeah. okay. Um, so before we really get all that into Inception, in case you're still listening, even though you were warned not to and you haven't seen the movie, very quickly, just break down, you liked Inception, without spoiling anything. You liked Inception. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. Uh, of course, we still got a couple months to go, but I don't... <laughs> yeah. Um, this has been an awful year. Um, and I give it credit for its ambition. Um, I could see studio heads tearing out their hair because there might be some people who think it's too complicated. Yeah. I don't think it's too complicated. I think it's one of the few films that asks you to pay attention. And I think part of Nolan's genius is he keeps it very clear throughout the entire film, mm -hmm. like a 3D chess game, right. where we are. Right. Uh, the endless shot of the white van right. falling in slow motion to keep us grounded in what level of reality we're in. But I keep waiting, and the film hasn't been out for that long, I keep waiting for this backlash. Oh, it's it's there. It was thrilling how complicated it was. Right. But it was, it was very easy to follow. And the trailers, I think were confusing because they don't give you a sense of what the movie's even about. Just images that are strange, out of context. Cities folding in half and buildings crumbling and people floating around hallways with no sense of a story. So I think people see that trailer and they say, that looks confusing. And I appreciated the trailer. Me too. Even more after I saw it because before Inception, we saw four or five trailers where... I don't have to see right, those films. Right, right. The trailer gives away the entire plot, right. and how wonderful to go see a trailer like Inception that doesn't give much away. I was surprised seeing the actual film that they took stuff from all over the yeah. movie and yeah. and blend, and it's all over the place because um, actually the downside of that, obviously the trailer worked. I went to see the movie. That's the point of the trailer is the trailer gave me the impression that it was going to be very, very much like Dark City mm -hmm. and very, very much like The Matrix. Right. And I don't think it's like either of those films. No, I mean, you could... There are certainly except elements... Cosmetically, right. Except cosmetically. And there are certainly elements, you know, I mean, you could say that there are elements of The Matrix in terms of this idea of we all plug into this same thing and we enter this other world that is not reality. Our bodies are still here in reality. That's The Matrix. But I do not believe that it ripped off the matrix um going back to the issue of it being confusing dean richards who is a professional film critic for wgn um gave the movie i think a b minus uh, which is fine you're allowed to not like it but the reason he gave was um it was too confusing he doesn't like a movie that you have to see more than once to understand which to me is is equivalent to him going on tv and announcing that he is stupid because that's a stupid thing to say, 
even if the movie is slightly challenging and hard to follow, which I didn't feel like it was. See, I see him as being an entertainment reporter, right. and he does these little interviews and red carpets and puff pieces. I, I really don't see him as being a movie critic. I think the best movies reward a repeat viewing. Exactly. I've discovered, because I'm getting old and I'm a curmudgeon, that there are some really great films that, for whatever reason, the first time I see them, they almost make me angry mm -hmm. until I think about them for a couple days. For example? Um, the first time I saw Synecdoche, New York. Which I still have not seen. I did not know what to make of it. Okay. I saw it at Ebert Fest. Mm -hmm. Ebert said it is, it is the greatest film of... The decade. Of the decade. Yeah. And that it's that decade's It's a Wonderful Life. Really? <laughs> and um, I think it's so rich and so full that it took me a little while to process it. Um, the exact same thing happened the first time I saw A Serious Man. Okay, that I, that I get. I mean, the film is is deliberately frustrating right. in that it presents a protagonist who doesn't act. Right. And so you're sitting in your seat for 90 minutes screaming <laughs> at him to do something, say something. Right. And it took me a really long time to work out in my head um, why it's such a great film. Um, I think... Inception would reward repeat viewings, and I anticipate that some people will go back to see it again, not because parts of it are an action movie, and action movies, you can go see them again because the action sequences are like musical numbers or something, but to see if the movie played fair. Right. I know when The Sixth Sense came out, a lot of people right. went back to see it right. to see if they were honest about the trick. I actually saw Inception twice. I went back the next morning and saw it again. I did not know that. I saw it opening night and went back the next morning, uh, mostly because I just really liked it, but also as I was watching it, I was doing that, seeing if it played fair. And from what I could tell, it absolutely does. Um, I'm a little intimidated talking about the movie, especially this early on. I mean, it's only been, it's been out for less than a week. Um, and... So I feel like anything I say at this point is, you know, usually we're talking about movies that have been around a little bit longer. We've sort of lived with them for longer. So I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about coming on too strong about the movie or because I think there are still a lot of things that I could understand about the movie. Um, but also because there's already sort of a, there's a, 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 a huge dichotomy of opinions on the movie already where there's sort of a, a fanboy embracing of it's that same group that called The Dark Knight the best movie ever made. I, I, I want to say Inception right now is number three on IMDb of the 250 best movies of all time. Now that is not an actual barometer of the best movies of all time, but it gives you a sense of how people are maybe overreacting to this movie. Well, it's interesting that you bring up The Dark Knight because clearly the reason he was allowed to make this right. very ambitious film right. is because The Dark Knight cleaned up. Right. Now, that being said, I think The Dark Knight deserved to clean up yeah. because The Dark Knight was amazing. Right. And I'm trying to remember, it's a wonderful book you all should read. It's called A Certain Tendency of the Hollywood Cinema by Robert B. Ray, who teaches at the University of Florida, at least he used to. And he suggested that post-World War II, you cannot have a film that is a tremendous success unless it satisfies two audiences, the naive audience and the informed audience. And they're going to movies for very different things. Mm -hmm. So The Dark Knight is Batman. And you got this real psycho playing the Joker who turns in one of the most interesting performances in the last 25 years, and it's Batman. And there's amazing, cool stuff and action sequences. And I'm not suggesting either audience is superior. They are exactly alike. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not being superior. I even don't know what side of the audience I'm on. <laughs> but there's a naive audience that goes for Batman and action, and they get more than satisfied because it's a great film. But then there's the informed audience who would like to see things more metaphorically. And I thought, probably more than any other American film of the era, The Dark Knight addressed, and pretty explicitly, mm -hmm. the subject of terrorism. Right. Absolutely. And it's full of ideas. And what else is full of ideas? Inception. Interestingly enough, Inception is full of ideas about ideas yeah. and memory and the way those things work. Um, I, I, the, 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 the quote-unquote informed audience 
um, or a lot of the critical community has already started a backlash against Inception. And the tenor of it really bothers me because it's very much, um, if, if you like this movie, it's because you think that you are an intellectual. This movie tries to tell you that it is intellectual. And so if you fall for that, well, you're being tricked by Christopher Nolan because actually this movie is not about anything. And one criticism that I've read over and over again that's making me crazy is that Nolan's approach to dreaming is too literal, that it is too much like reality. His dreams aren't like dreams at all. And I think that's unfair for two reasons. One, the movie explicitly states sort of why that is, which is when we construct um, these landscapes for the subjects, um, they have to remain as much like reality as possible, otherwise the person knows they're dreaming. So there, within the text, is an explanation of why it is the way it is. But it's also a, a critical community, a community faulting a movie not for what it is, but for what it isn't. That, that, that doesn't. Those don't look like my dreams, so this isn't good. But that's not the movie he's interested in making. Am I wrong? I, I agree with you, although I, I, I can't even think of an analogy for this. I thought the way dreams were presented in Inception were very much like the way that I dream, mm -hmm. um, with one exception. Okay. And I thought Nolan covered this subconsciously in an interesting manner. The film suggests that if the dreamer is subject to outside forces, mm -hmm. that that will somehow right. translate in the dream. Right. So we have the uh, van falling through the air, and suddenly in the dream everyone is floating around. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone, in that occasionally in your dreams you can float or you can fly. Mm -hmm. This is one of my earliest memories of dreams, of being able to do that in dreams. So perhaps the, the people you're talking about, the people making this criticism, object to the fact that Nolan felt he had to have sort of a realistic reason, mm -hmm. ironically, for the floating in the dream. Mm -hmm. Whereas in my dreams, if I'm flying around, it's because I'm dreaming. Right. But I, I thought the dreams in Inception were very much the way I dream. Mm -hmm. Um, at one point, and this is uh, this is referenced in an essay that all of you should read. Yes, on the Chud website, and it's by Devin Faraci, and he does a wonderful job um, arguing a point. I'm not sure if I agree with him, but at one point he says there are things in the film that we are expected to take as reality that he thinks are is also a dream. He feels the entire film, including Leonardo DiCaprio's Leonardo DiCaprio's reality is also a dream, that the entire film is a meta-dream. I mean, look at the last shot. Right. I interpreted the last shot as a Rorschach inkblot test okay. for the audience. Okay. It is clear that we see the top for a long time, right. and at least twice it looks like it's going to slow down and topple, right. and then it writes itself, right. and then we fade to black. Right. So we never see it, obviously, continuing to spin forever, but we also don't see it falling. And I thought that was brilliant. In fact, I began to laugh giddily at that point, and my wife was afraid that I was bothering people around us, because I thought that was the perfect ending for the film. And actually, that interpretation, that Nolan is asking the audience, mm -hmm. do you want this to be reality, or right. do you want this to be a dream, right. goes very much hand-in-hand hand with Faraci's thesis, or one of Faraci's theses, that a catharsis that takes place in a dream, or by extension, a motion picture, is every bit as legitimate as a catharsis that comes to you normally. That art has the power to transform. Mm -hmm. And in this film, the metaphor for art is a dream. Someone is creating a dream for someone else. Mm -hmm. A picture of reality that for a short while at least, someone's going to look at like reality. So all the dreams are little movies. And, and I thought the essay was great. Of course, I'm referring to, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to get everyone to go read it because it's very good. But when I saw the film, that's one of the things I said, that all the stuff in the movie about dreams is a wonderful metaphor for what Nolan is doing. Mm -hmm. Nolan is a filmmaker, and his job is to present people with two-hour dreams. Mm -hmm. 
the purpose of which is to get us to some sort of emotional catharsis or payoff, which he or does... Or reaction or right, insight. which he or... does to the, you know, for the characters uh, within the movie, but then which I think that last shot, that's what that's about. That what's placed in our... And again, now we're going to really get into heavy spoilers if for some reason you haven't turned this off yet. That, uh, that sort of the whole through line for the movie is... Leonardo DiCaprio has to get back to his kids. So we as viewers, that's what we want. We want him to be able to get back to his kids. Um, and so that's what that ending gives us. And of course, then he spins the top and says, maybe he is with his kids or maybe he's just dreaming. But no matter what, the feeling that we get seeing him reunited with his kids uh, is real. Because I walked away from it after the first viewing, taking things sort of at face value. That he wakes up on the plane, and he's awake, and everything from there on out is reality. I didn't really pay attention to the fact that his kids are still the same age and still wearing the same clothing. Um, and he spins the top. To me, it looks like it's about to wobble. And I think, great, this is reality. He's back where he wants to be. And then um, on the second viewing, I started to wonder if if that was the case. And that bothered me because I I, I wanted a happy ending for that character. Like, I wanted to believe he got what he wanted. And so did I. Right. Which is why the spinning top at the end and the abrupt fade to black exists as a Rorschach for right. the people watching the film. You want that top to fall? You're an optimist. Right. You want this guy to get what he wanted. Right. But what the movie is kind of saying, I think, and what Devin Faraci is arguing is whether it falls or whether it keeps spinning doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Our feeling is the same because guess what? If it falls and it's quote unquote reality, no, it isn't. It's still a, it's movie. a movie. No matter what, it's still pretend. So None as, of it's real. So as opposed to a dream within a dream within a dream, we have a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream within a movie, folks. <laughs> right. Let's keep this in perspective. Um, although I do think Farachi's uh, piece of evidence that the entire film is a meta dream, if you will, is that. Spoiler, when uh, DiCaprio actually witnesses his wife commit suicide, it's oddly across mm -hmm. the street, mm -hmm. and she's in the window of another hotel, mm -hmm. which... As I'm watching, again, I take it at face value. I think, that's odd. Maybe she rented a room in the other hotel. But then, as the movie even says, when you wake up, you start to notice things that were off. Right. And that was one of those things where, yeah, when you think about it, that doesn't, that's odd. And clearly she's messed up right. the hotel room that he's standing in looking right. out the window. Right. So how on earth could the case then be made, because the film suggests the case was made because he's a wanted man, mm -hmm. that they somehow had some sort of scuffle that ended up with her out the window. Mm -hmm. Why is she across the street? Right. I mean, that that's a hell of a piece of evidence. Way to go, Devin. Yeah. Um, and the other piece that he cites is the, the during a chase scene early on, he's running from this faceless corporation, which, again, then Marianne Cotillard references in one of the dreams as proof that he's still dreaming. Do you really think you're running from this corporation? And they make it very explicit because when I was watching the film, I thought, isn't it interesting that in what the film is presenting as reality, he's undergoing the same thing that they say always happens in dreams, right. that you're discovered and you're pursued. Right. Um, so he's running away from them and, and two buildings. He's running through an alleyway, and they seemingly converge at the end, and he has to squeeze through them. You never actually see the buildings move, so no. it's not as though that's happening. And again, I just thought... Maybe there's some bizarre architecture there, and well, the alley really is that narrow. And in, in Europe, the buildings are very close together. Right. Um, you all need to go to Chud and read Farachi's essay. Yeah. We both thought it was very thought-provoking. Yeah. We, we are not attempting to steal Mr. Uh, Devin's thunder. He's, no, not he's, at all. he's a very thoughtful person, and he writes very well. Um, I really, really loved the movie. Um, I've liked every one of Christopher Nolan's movies in varying degrees, and I thought this one was in every way the culmination of everything that he's been doing um, since Memento. 
He's certainly a master of his craft. On Patrick's other blog, he loudly suggested at the beginning of this week that now Hollywood could stop making movies <laughs> now that Inception has been made. So that gives you an idea of how much he loved it. Let me throw a tiny monkey wrench in the gears. Okay. Because I love the movie, too. I thought, as opposed to these critics that you were citing, where if I somehow feel the film is intellectual and I'm an intellectual because I enjoyed it. That is, the film somehow s congratulates me right. for being smart enough, which I don't agree with. But it's fake. Right. Um, because it's not really smart. I think the film is intellectual. I think maybe one of the reasons why it stands out so much is because most films have become so irretrievably stupid. Right. Um, I don't think it's abstract. I don't think it's esoteric. I don't think it's unfathomable. I think it's complicated. Right. And that's and that's rare. I don't think it's particularly difficult to puzzle out unless you want to start wondering if in the larger but reality. But because you can do that, I mean, again, that's what makes it, I think, a great movie. That's why films are great. Right. Um so no, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. But my one quibble is, if the entire point of uh, the uh, the enterprise in the film is to implant ideas into people's heads, and if the entire idea of a movie is to somehow have the audience undergo some sort of catharsis, um, I laughed, I cried, I kissed, I kissed ten bucks goodbye. Um, I find what's in the middle of Inception. DiCaprio trying to reconcile himself to the memories of his wife and get back to his children to be oddly emotionless. Okay. I find, I find parts of the film to be an intellectual exercise in keeping three levels of action going mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I don't particularly feel an emotional stake. I have this sort of visceral thrill sense mm -hmm. of, I hope they stay alive. I hope they get past this obstacle. I hope they don't die. I hope those people don't go to limbo because that seems really bad <laughs> and it's for a really long time. Un, what was something dream space, raw dream, no, I forget what they call it, but it's, it's nonsense, people. That I don't have an emotional reaction to DiCaprio's feelings for his wife mm -hmm. and especially his desire to get back to his children. And this is interesting because DiCaprio is a very good actor yeah. and a very charming actor, to use that word, a ch uh, an actor that we usually identify with. And I read in an interview that DiCaprio based his character on Nolan. Mm -hmm. So is that what we're seeing, this sort of emotional remove? And what I compare it to is um, there is a film called The Searchers, mm -hmm. a John Ford film with John Wayne, and uh, some children are stolen. Uh, and a, a party goes searching for them for a very long time. Yeah. And at the end of the film, and I would argue in that film you're very invested in the search, and uh, in a lot of ways it resembles what's at the heart of um, Inception in that we're trying to rescue children or mm -hmm. we're trying to get back home mm -hmm. or these very close-to-our-heart tropes. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just because I've seen it a lot more times and maybe because it's the film that is closer to my heart. But at the end of The Searchers, when John Wayne says, let's go home, Debbie, mm -hmm. it has tremendous emotional weight. And I responded to Inception as an intellectual exercise, as an action film, as a film that was full of ideas. But if the point of the film is to cause some sort of emotional catharsis, I found the quandary at the middle of the film to be a little cold. Okay. Um, it, that's certainly... I and think, I have kids. Yeah. I think I think that's certainly true of a lot of Christopher Nolan's stuff. He has never dealt with uh, emotional matters particularly well um, because he definitely approaches things from more of a, a clinical perspective. Um, but I, I, would, I, I have two sort of responses. The first is I think some of what you're saying points to the theory that it's all a dream because things are so sort of vague and undefined and it's sort of these broad strokes. I miss my wife. I have to get back to my kids. But it's never – you're not given much detail about any of that. It's just sort of a vague idea. And I think that sort of, again, points to the theory that maybe this is all a dream because those are – 
things that we feel in dreams, we don't necessarily have, you know, specific knowledge about those things. It's just, I need to do this thing. But seeing the movie um, a second time, and even the first time, I will say I did, not so much with the kids, but I think I had more of an emotional connection to the stuff with Marion Cotillard, that I was sort of um, moved by some of it, particularly at the end when he gives her that monologue and, and reveals, no, we did grow old together. There's such a sort of a sense of tragedy about the whole thing that they spent 50 years together alone. And then, um, you know, all of that was taken. They, they did grow old together, and then he has to go through the rest of his life actually without her. And there's a reveal, huge spoiler, there's a reveal near the end of the movie that what drove her insane and caused her to kill herself was something that he had done. And since you don't know that the f going through the movie the first time, you can't feel that throughout the whole movie. But seeing it the second time, I thought I was, I was more emotionally invested in um, sort of his sense of guilt and I thought I that was, worked. Yeah, I thought that worked along with his monologue to explaining her performance because throughout the entire film, she's not her. She is an expression of his self-loathing, right? And the the guilt that he feels, right? So I maybe because I was raised Catholic, uh, guilt is a friend. Um, the guilt stuff worked. Maybe I need to see it a second time for the wife and kids stuff to sort of punched me in the gut emotionally. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, maybe this is beyond a quibble. The film is not trying to do that. Which I That's, think uh, that, that case could also be made. Th that is not something the film is interested in. Right, which I absolutely think that case could be made. I definitely think that sort of emotional side, and I know you were, I think you were going to say this earlier, that a lot of this same stuff, spoilers for Shutter Island was also done in Shutter Island, a movie that has a lot of similarities, um, and I think the emotional side of it was handled much better in Shutter Island. So this is either a case of a bug's life and ants, <laughs> that once an idea gets loose in Hollywood, it's a virus. Deep Impact and Armageddon, Dante's Peak and Volcano. Uh, all those body-switching movies. Yeah. That, as Nolan himself says in the screenplay, an idea is a virus, <laughs> and it spreads. It's interesting that arguably the two best movies of 2010 are both playing the same game, right. albeit with in, the same lead actor in very different ways. Yeah. Because Shutter Island, which I call Scorsese's Hitchcock picture, is very melodramatic. Yeah. And if there's one thing that Inception isn't interested in doing, is <laughs> right. being a melodrama. Right. Yeah. One definitely comes at it from more of a cerebral. Uh side. Um, I give Leonardo DiCaprio a lot of credit, actually, for agreeing to star in Inception. Reading the script, I mean, he had to have thought to himself, well, this is awfully similar to something I just did, but that he still had the confidence to say, but I, I recognize this as something special, because Inception is something very, very special, and I hope it makes a boatload of money, because it's an original idea. It's a complete vision by a really talented director um and i made a comment to a friend after seeing it because now nolan's next movie of course will be the third batman movie cool which i find after inception i'm not interested in i don't want to see him go back and handle i like his batman movie. i do too i and think they're some of the best comic book movies ever made but i don't want to see him go back and deal with an existing property but given and maybe this is only my opinion, but I think it's shared by a lot of people. The Dark Knight is significantly better than Batman Begins. Yes. And with the incredible success of The Dark Knight, mm -hmm. I'm interested in what he'll do next because now I think he has a looser leash from the comic book people. Right. I, I, as soon as I start reading casting stuff or see a single trailer, of course I will be super excited for his next Batman movie. But right now, that idea doesn't interest me as much Uh as seeing him do something original again. And also, you uh, going back to your DiCaprio point, I'm not one of these people who think that famous Hollywood actors have it particularly difficult. <laughs> I mean, I think they're well compensated. Right. But on a practical level, DiCaprio playing a very difficult, what I'm taking to be a difficult role to assume for however many weeks of production in Shutter Island, I mean, it's emotionally draining yeah. because it's, for 
every day you're there and you're on the edge and you're on the edge of your... And then to do Inception, mm-hmm. in which he's basically doing the same thing, and I'm guessing the Inception shooting schedule was longer because it's a much more ambitious film, but yeah. it doesn't seem to me to be the most fun year <laughs> playing these two characters back-to-back. Right. So, no. Uh, shortly after Titanic, DiCaprio made some choices and roles that I sort of questioned. But actually, there was a recent article in Slate, I think by Dana Stevens, where she said she made the opposite point, that DiCaprio's choices of roles seem deliberately designed to alienate the audience he gained through Titanic. Yeah. Um, and she thought that was a bad idea, but uh, continually in the film study class I teach, um, I make the point that there are Hollywood stars who can act and there are Hollywood stars who can't act. Um, but who are good at being movie stars. And this flies in the face of what a lot of my students think. But I've always been of the opinion that Leonardo DiCaprio is a very, very good actor, mm-hmm. very, very capable. And the performance I always point to is uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, yep. which is an amazing performance um, that he kept, oh, I don't want to say top, but that he kept um, reassuring us that that he he was in possession of this talent in, I think, much the same way that Johnny Depp keeps choosing things that aren't the same. Say what you want, they're not the same. Until Alice in Wonderland. And which, then it was just the same thing he's done five times. Which but. I have to admit, I haven't seen, because as I get older, if I'm assured that the film will hyper me into a frenzy, <laughs> I no longer go. So I did not see Alice in Wonderland, Heavens to Betsy, Blasphemy, I have not seen... Avatar, Avatar, okay, and um, I did not go to see The Grinch uh. because The Grinch, the original book, and the amazing Chuck Jones, Boris Karloff animated special hold a very special place in my heart, and I just didn't feel like spending 90 minutes having my heart ripped out, um, and everything I read about The Grinch tells me that I need to stay away from The Grinch, so I have not seen Alice in Wonderland because... Um, I think I missed Alice because I saw Charlie and the Chocolate yeah, Factory. Yeah, right. Um, the Grinch, by the way, is is like Ron Howard figure out a way to film someone's nightmare. That's That seems to be the production design of that movie. And that's interesting because shortly after the film wrapped, <laughs> uh, my family and I visited Universal Studios ah. in California. And the sets were still standing because, you know, you heard the tourists through that, and right. they go, oh, this is from the Grinch. <laughs> and somewhat improbably, they were in this little valley right below the Psycho house. So that was rather surreal. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, uh, oh, you didn't know that wasn't in the Dr. Seuss book that the Bates Hotel looks out <laughs> over Whoville? And at that point, I think I'm dreaming. How's that, Mr. <laughs> nice. Segway? Nice. Um I, again, we, we've already pointed out that this year has been kind of terrible, and I would see the trailers for Inception, and, and I was very much banking on that movie to sort of rescue the summer, perhaps the entire year. Um, and I kept thinking, boy, if that movie is any less than amazing, I will be severely disappointed. And uh, I, I thought the movie exceeded my expectations. It's, it's definitely the best thing I've seen uh, this year. And um, and it did kind of rescue this whole year for me. Like I, I was saying, uh, I really feel like now the year is broken down to everything that came before Inception and everything that comes after Inception. Well, it didn't rescue the entire year because a it's been a bad year, and b I've seen grown ups. <laughs> well, no matter what, 2010 will be the year that Inception came out. That's why I say that it rescued the year. The other day, uh, we were playing a game around the dinner table because now that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences have seen fit to nominate ten films, the natural game is, hey, it's almost August. Mm -hmm. Can you name five movies that deserve to be nominated? It's almost August. Um, I've seen a lot of movies this year. I certainly haven't seen everything, but I count two. And interestingly enough, it was the two movies we were just talking Shutter about. Shutter Island and Inception. I, I do not see Shutter Island getting very many nominations. 
Because um, it was released too early in the year? Yeah, and I think a lot of people just view it as sort of minor Scorsese. That's a shame. Um, and, and in some ways it is minor Scorsese. It's Scorsese doing kind of a B movie. I would like argue. A Sam Fuller uh, movie. No, I would argue with that. Really? I think there's a lot more going in Shutter Island than you think. Okay. I mean, I think I get most of what's going on in Shutter Island. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> no, no, I know no, you're not I'm saying not. that I don't get it, but I'm just saying, I think even getting what's going on, I still think it's... I think uh, it's a wonderful film that I enjoyed from start to finish. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I thought, and I'm certainly not the one to suggest this, and maybe this is my old age talking, I thought Shutter Island was worth going to see just for what it looked like. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. Which doesn't happen very often. I came out of Shutter Island, and though I was mixed on the movie, I made the point that I was far more visually engaged in that movie than I had been in Avatar, which was the whole argument that people were making for seeing Avatar, is that it's so involving on a visual level. And I would say, no, Shutter Island is involving on a visual level. This has been such a bad year. And next month, tune in again, because we're going to have a summer wrap-up podcast. Perhaps. Yes, definitely. Um, this year has been so bad that Pixar, running on one engine, yeah, can make a film that is at least two hours of fun. Right. Yeah, not not even the best Pixar movie, but it's still one of the best things that's come out this year because right. the and year it's... has been so um, weak. I came out of Inception, and again, I fully admit I'm I'm just in the bag for Inception right now. And five years down the line, maybe I will be so embarrassed by everything that I've said here. When he says five years, he means two months. <laughs> <laughs> but I came out of it just thinking, how can that movie not pick up every Oscar nomination, with the exception of... Um, I think the acting categories. Though I think all of the acting in the movie is good, I would argue that the characters are all very underdeveloped. Again, I believe deliberately so. I think they're filling a function. I don't think they're meant to exist as three-dimensional people. I think DiCaprio's people. a natural for best actor. I think given the rest of the films to come out this summer, I think Cotillard could get one for yeah. supporting actress, um, especially given that she's been nominated before. Um, what I thought... And won. Yeah, I keep forgetting that she won. Everyone forgot, because it was like, what? <laughs> what I always thought, and, and, and I don't mean to sound ignorant, that part of that award was part of the same spirit of, she's beautiful, <laughs> and in this movie, she's not beautiful. Uh, I haven't seen the movie. Here's a statue. But um, did you notice the song playing over the end credits and throughout the movie? Yes. I noticed Edith that Pink. and wondered why. Uh, it's once again Nolan being self-referential that um, I thought this when I was watching the film and my son brought this up after he saw the film completely independently um, that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is really good in this movie Mm -hmm. and is asked to do some things that obviously took some training and patience and and that's never rewarded right Um, but a supporting actor nod for him, I thought he was really good. Yeah, he's good in everything. I mean, he's and he's I wondered good. how long it took. And of course, I'm still trying to figure out how they did it. Right. And I'm hoping it's not. Well, we got rid of the wires. <laughs> we, we erased the wires because there are several shots. There's a scene where everyone's floating, and he has to wrap everyone in a wire or something, and and he's floating down a hallway. And he meets the bad guys, and they fight in zero gravity. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be some shots in that sequence that are deliberately designed to say, oh, you think we used wires? Now they're going to spin. Right. My wife has a theory about how they did it. Okay. My son read online how they did it. I'm guessing on the DVD there'll be a little making of thing. I would assume so, yeah. Um, for a while I thought they went up in one of those airplanes like they did for Apollo 13. Right. Which makes sense. But then the sequence gives lie to that. Any way that you would just sit there as a pedestrian, as a civilian, and look at it, they can't be up in a plane because it's an enormous set that's the length of a hallway. Right. They can't use wires because they spin right. on an axis that would make that impossible. Um, my wife thought they did part of it underwater. It looked like it. I really, especially seeing it the second time, the way that they were moving at certain points truly looked like they were underwater so then we have to address the problem of the clothing exactly but 
this actually uh, reinforces my wife's feeling. Throughout the entire film, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has his hair slicked back. Okay. Could that have been some very clever filmmaker saying, we start with his hair slicked back, so when we get to that sequence, it doesn't call attention to itself, because that's just the thing you would want to do so that his hair doesn't give away the water game. Right, but I don't feel like the clothes move in a way that they would... If they were underwater. So could the entire thing be CGI, and they found a way to graft the faces on that doesn't look loony? I really don't think so. Because whenever they do CGI and just stick the face on... It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. What I liked about that sequence, which obviously is sort of the coolest in the movie, and actually throughout the movie he does this, um, it's, it's obviously very much a set piece in that it's its own thing, and it's one of these things that everybody points to, oh, the zero-gravity fight, but I never felt like, and there are certain, there are several moments like that that are sort of set piecey. but I never feel like the movie stops and says, and now this is going to happen, and then resumes, that, it's, that they're almost like throwaways. Even the buildings falling um, in certain sequences, yeah. Especially at the end, when the, when they're on the beach and the buildings start falling, it's not like now we have to stop. So we see that everything's crumbling and caving in. I mean, uh, uh, the movie does that a little bit at the beginning, in that first Ken Watanabe dream that starts to fall apart before all the water comes in, which is very cool. Um, and another thing that you think, how did they shoot that? <laughs> I had a similar reaction to um, the snowmobile chase. Mm-hmm. And at this point, if you haven't seen Inception, the <laughs> snowmobile chase? What the what? That um, as we get down into different levels of dreaming, it becomes a different movie. Right. So we get the but first each one, level. Each level is a different kind of movie. Uh, it's stylized. The yeah. second level is very matrixy. And then the third level is a James Bond film. Right. And I wondered if Nolan did this on purpose, or once again, if it's me getting old. In the first Harry Potter movie, the Quidditch game was edited so quickly, mm-hmm. I could not visually process it. Right. And in Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan strikes again, <laughs> there was a couple fight sequences yeah. that were a blur. Right. I wondered if he deliberately did some wacky, discontinuous editing of the snowmobile sequences mm-hmm. to make them seem somehow out of joint. That whole action the part mm-hmm. that most looks like an action movie mm-hmm. is very strange mm-hmm. and i wondered if he did that deliberately and again it's one of the things that i think the movie is um getting shit on for um is that it's sort of it turns into this cliched action movie or another thing is uh it's there's far too much exposition that ellen page's function in the movie is essentially just to deliver exposition um but i i just and once again, perhaps it's just because I'm too close to this movie right now. I, I understand where people could see fault in it, but I don't find fault in those things. That I just feel like, okay, maybe, but all of that is deliberate. And I think it's for the reason that you're saying that it's it's becoming... It's a James Bond movie And that's, that's interesting that it's being criticized for that, because maybe this is just my weird, wonderful, wacky mind. I thought one of the more interesting points the film was making on the side was the deeper we get into one subconscious, the more it begins to resemble a bad movie. That, Interesting. Just in terms of my tastes, mm-hmm. the first level of the dream is a much better movie than the second level of the dream. And the third level of the dream is just a mess. It's right. very much you dreaming that you're in a James Bond film that's made up of bits and pieces <laughs> of something. I really thought that Nolan did that on purpose, and he was saying something about our subconscious. Yeah. Plus, isn't part of our subconscious made up of bits and pieces of movies? Right. Well, definitely. Um, and again, that sort of goes to the whole argument that the movie is about filmmaking and yes. the way that movies are made. Um, and I, I, I really thought, I know people, again, have criticized the screenplay and said that the dialogue is clunky and that, once again, Ellen Page exists just as an exposition machine. But I really thought, I, I thought the screenplay was actually really clever in the way that it would introduce things. And again, through pretty direct explanation a lot of times, because how else can you establish the rules when you're creating this whole new thing? You have to establish a set of rules, and there are a lot of rules in this movie. Um, but that it would introduce things that 
would pay off in a way that made sense. And this is a, maybe a, a trite example, but the very first scene in the movie is Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's trying to pull a con on Ken Watanabe by saying, I can teach you um, defense from extractors like myself. I can teach you how to... So that later on in the movie, when they go into Killian Murphy and there's guys shooting at them with guns, they don't have to stop necessarily and say, oh, that's because he was... Um, he was taught. He was. I mean, they do say, "Oh, he was taught," but we are. That concept has already been introduced to us. The film imagines a future where it seems rich people routinely have this right. training, right? Because intellectual property is valuable. Um, the, the next point is not original to me. My lovely wife brought it up, and I agreed with her completely. And it goes along with what you're saying about how explicit the film is about some things and how inexplicit it is about others. Clearly, like we how have, the whole technology works. Right. That's, <laughs> they never explain. It's a but suitcase. Why do you need to? Right. It's a suitcase, and it goes right. in your arm, and you press a button. Right. And that's all you need to know. Right. Because it's the future. <laughs> um, that while we do have a film that essentially has an hour of exposition, mm -hmm. although I would say entertaining exposition, right. for the hour and a half payoff, right. it does other things a lot better than other mediocre movies. And the example that my wife used was uh, when we're on the second level of the dream, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character has to simulate these people being jarred. He has to make these people feel like they're falling, mm -hmm. but there's no gravity. And Nolan has him say... How do I simulate this with no gravity? Mm -hmm. And that's all the dialogue there is. And he goes about doing something that the film then invites the audience to say, okay, he's doing this, mm -hmm. he's doing this. Why is he doing this? Mm -hmm. And even when he starts leading them out to the elevator, mm -hmm. I think the film is giving you the pleasure of saying, oh, okay, this is the way he's going to do that, as opposed to another film that would have him painstakingly right, right. work it out in some way, perhaps right. through dialogue. Right. And I think, uh, I, I don't think Nolan can be faulted for the first hour, because as you said, things are set up in the first hour that pay off right. um, in, the, in the last 90 minutes in spades. Um, it's a great movie. It's such a great movie. And, 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 I also like what you're talking about. The Joseph Gordon-Levitt stuff is going on, but once again, the movie doesn't necessarily just stop to show us Joseph Gordon-Levitt doing all that because at the same time, it's intercutting with the scientist in a car chase on a bridge, or no, at that point, at that the car point is just falling. going off the bridge, but then all the stuff on the mountain, too, that it's all this stuff is going on. I really, especially sitting through it the first time, could not believe the way that it was cut together and the way that he makes all of those layers work at the same time although every I, time they cut back to that van falling you want to giggle a little bit that that's your reaction you're just uh, you're, you you're so excited by what this movie is doing it's audacious yeah um although i have to say when i saw the film i kept waiting for them to cut back to the plane which of course would have been the worst it would yeah, have been right. the single worst right. mistake you could possibly right. make right so i'm not a filmmaker and um Using the falling van is our way of keeping one level of time. And that's another thing they set up in the first hour. That the, Time is different the, uh, at each level. The, the audience is expected to hear that and understand it and right. carry it with them. And it's not belabored later on. Right. At least I didn't feel it was. Is it possible that the entire film is a dream up to where he wakes up on the plane? And when he wakes up on the plane, he's just a guy waking up on a plane. He sees other other passengers on the plane that he has had no interaction with, but which he has dreamt of because he saw them sitting on the plane. And he goes home. Uh, his father picks him up at the airport, and he goes home and sees his kids. Has someone suggested this? No. Or are you suggesting that's, this? I'm just suggesting that. That that's the only moment where reality starts. And that it's not necessarily informed by anything that comes before it, except that it's an elaborate dream that he wakes up from. That's that's pretty cool. I'd have to see it again. Um, I don't think it. I don't think that carries much thematic weight, though. It's just Devin Faraci suggests it's in his the Wizard essay, of Oz, you know? which of course you should all read. <laughs> Please read it. It's great. That there's something very odd about how everything looks and is edited after they wake up on the plane at mm -hmm. the end, 
And of course, I'd have to see it again to look at that. But of course, this is a film that rewards repeated viewing. So here's an idea. Instead of going to see Grown Ups, although I think everyone in the country has now seen this by this time, it made a lot of money. Instead of going to see Grown Ups, go see Inception again. You'll thank me. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's it then. Um, everyone go see Inception. It's the best thing this year. Do you, Okay, let me ask you this. Do you like it better than Shutter Island? Between the two, if it's a horse race between the two, as you have said, which one comes out on top? At this point, I honestly can't pick. I'd like to see them both again. I think, uh, to borrow a cliche, it's very much apples and oranges because what those two films are trying to do for all their surface similarities mm -hmm. is very, very different. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we have both. <laughs> he said, sitting on the fence. Um, all right. Well, so that's F This Movie. You can always email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can subscribe to us in iTunes. You can find us at dvdverdictpresents.com, fthismovie.blogspot.com. There's, there's no way you can avoid this podcast at this point, I don't think. Tonight, you will hear this podcast in your dreams. Bye, everybody. <laughs>